Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Charlotte Nickdow. She stars on Mythic Quest, a comedy on Apple TV+. Mythic Quest is about a video game company. It's not really about video games. You'll love it if you waited in line overnight to buy a PS5, but you'll also love it if you haven't touched a game controller since the days of ColecoVision. It's a workplace comedy, but think less The Office, more The Larry Sanders Show. Everyone on the program cares deeply about what they're working on. A video game, Mythic Quest, a massive World of Warcraft-style online fantasy experience. Along with caring deeply about that game, everyone on the show also suffers from crippling insecurity. There's Ian, spelled I-A-N, like Ian, played by Rob McElhenney of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Ian is the founder and creator of Mythic Quest. He wears a lot of rings and bracelets and has a very expensive-looking haircut. In other words, he looks like a nerd who struck it rich, which is what he is. But he also worries that Mythic Quest is the only good idea he'll ever have. And then there's Poppy, played by my guest, Charlotte Nickdow. If Ian is a natural-born leader who fears he can't lead, Poppy is the opposite. A talented engineer with a million great ideas who can't really relate to people and constantly gets in her own way. Like in this scene from the first season of Mythic Quest, Poppy has gotten to take the lead on her first big project. It's a new feature in Mythic Quest called Dinner Party. Now, what is Dinner Party? Well, no one actually knows. But it doesn't matter. As you're about to hear, Dinner Party is ready to deploy. And to celebrate, Poppy gives a speech to her team. A lot of hard work has gone into this, and now all that's left to do is hit this button. Where's Ian? Doesn't he usually do the speech? Yes, Michelle, he does, but I'm doing this one. Because after the whole shovel thing, Ian finally agreed to let me have something that's mine. And that thing is dinner party! It just seems like a natural clapping, whatever. Just just don't interrupt. Oh, so Ian didn't help. That's why the name's so confusing. It's not confusing, Michelle. What else would you call a feature that allows players to connect across guilds and plan large-scale events? Have you ever been to a dinner party? Yes. Hundreds. Can you please stop being so negative and don't interrupt anymore? You know what? I'm just going to skip to the end. Let's launch! (laughs) Charlotte, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I had to ask you a couple of quick Australia things that came up a few months ago on the program Let's go. that need to be addressed. Um, what I would call a playground slide, what would that be called? A slide. Have you, have you heard the term slippery dip? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, definitely slippery dip is a big one. But, you know, I think of a slippery dip as being like, hmm... What? I think there's a difference between a slippery dip and a slide. Really? Yeah. And I, 
I should I should say that there are some things, some Australianisms that I'm certain are cultural, and then I find out after being certain publicly about it that it's actually just me. <laughs> <laughs> we had to do a whole lot of ADR on season one of Mythic Quest because I was like, Australians say assume. <laughs> and then I asked a bunch of Australians and they were like, no, we say assume and you are saying it wrong. <laughs> so I have to be careful. <laughs> I think a slippery dip is an extra long slide. I don't think that just your average playground slide counts as a slippery dip. Because Claudio Doherty, the brilliant Australian comic and actress, told me that all slides are called slippery dips. I'm sure she's right. Uh, you know what? I actually think I trust Claudia Odori more with understanding Australianisms than myself. I don't trust Claudia Odori at all. As far as I could throw her. I really don't and find her can, trustworthy. I you think can you can put that on the record. She would she would stab me in the back as soon as <laughs> I, look at me. I actually don't know Claudia. We have a lot of mutual. She's friends. very funny. She's a cool lady, but <laughs> and, a little shifty. And what was the second thing that she said? What things go on a, on a hamburger in Australia? Oh, beetroot. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a big one that you guys hate. <laughs> Is it like a, like a pickled beet? Yes. It's like a, well, we call it a t- tinned beetroot. You guys would call it canned, canned. beet. Yeah. And you don't say the root part, do you? No, we just say beet. I get told off a lot between countries. There are definitely a few words that in Australia, if I say beets, they're like root, beet, root. You say it right. And then if I'm here, it's the same with like here you call it a trash can and there they call it a bin. So if I say let's take out the trash, people will get upset with me that I've spent too much time in America. But uh, have you ever had pineapple on a burger before? So that's the other thing that Claudia told me. That was the argument. It seems pretty... (laughs) Wait, so you don't have pineapple on burgers ever? No. (gasps) Oh, you're missing out. You should. Really? Yeah, and I bet you could get it here. And I mean, it's think about salty, sweet, like umami, fatty, like acidic. You're covering all bases. It, it fulfills the function of tomato. Like, I can get into this. If you want to get into this. Let's take a moment. Yeah. I can get into it. Tomato is kind of covering that base on a burger. Now, right? you say tomato. I say tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Tomato. I, I would say tomato covers that sort of like, cit- not citrus, but like acidic, sweet, juicy function. But you know what is more acidic and sweet and juicy? Pineapple. Is it like an like a full Yeah, it's like a ring of pineapple. And it's burger shaped and sized. It's it's like it was made to go on a burger. The shape and size is convincing to me. Yeah, it's perfect. It's like a slice of cheese. When you came out to the United States, were there things that seemed as ridiculous to you as slippery dip? I think no, because and I don't know if Claudia said this, but I really grew up surrounded by American culture. I mean, you do in Australia and in most Western countries and non-Western countries around the world. Like, I watched American television and American film. And so if if anything, it was more like I really enjoyed getting to experience these things that were completely relegated to television. The first time I actually came to America was not at all for work and not to be an actor, but because I was, the whole first part of my life, I was certain that I was going to be a a very serious musician. And I came over here when I was 15 to do what was essentially band camp. 
And um, yes, the eyebrows. That's the, the eyebrows that I always get when I say band camp. But you were a you were an aspiring jazz singer, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was an aspiring a lot of things. I kind of cycled through a few genres and instruments trying to find one that I was good at. And then when I failed to do that, I was like, okay, shifting, shifting industry. <laughs> but yeah, I came out here to do this band camp and the the most exciting part of that experience was getting to walk through a cafeteria with a tray of food to find a table because I'd seen it in so many American movies. And that's just not the way that we do things in Australia. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so glamorous. <laughs> How do you transport more than two food elements? <laughs> I was like, I don't know where I'm going to sit, just like in the movies. <laughs> do, do all Australians know how to do that thing where you well, hold no, multiple plates on your no, arm? No, no, like we don't do cafeterias. We, everyone brings a packed lunch and you've got a little bag for it. Let's, you seem skeptical. <laughs> let's talk about your show business aspirations. Okay. Your, your father was, is an actor. Yeah. He was one of the first Asian actors on Australian screens in the 70s. He migrated from the Philippines in 75, which was incidentally the year that the white Australia policy ended, which stopped anyone that was not white from migrating into the country. So his family was one of the first of sort of a, a big wave of migration from like surrounding Asian countries and thus a bit of a change in culture as well. How old was he at the time? He was a teenager. I think he was 14 or 15. Uh, so he came with his parents and his two siblings. And then he, when he was in the Philippines, used to do like theater groups in the park and actually was devastated to be moving away from that because he loved it so much. I don't even know how he managed to get into it, but he, his very first role, he was a background person on a show called The... Oh, no, I've forgotten what the show was called. I'll get back to you on that. It was a really, really long-running show in Australia, and he loved it. And then since then, he's sort of – it's never been his full-time job, but it's always just been something that he jumps into when he gets opportunities. And so I watched him every so often when I was a kid just go off and be on TV, and then we'd all sit as a family and watch the episode. And that was not – that was – I mean, it was just kind of a fun quirk of stuff that my dad did – and never at any point did I think, and I want to do that as well. In fact, it was almost the opposite. I was like, oh, I can see what that looks like. And I don't know. I just never considered that maybe I could do it as a full-time job. Did your dad just do screen acting or did he? Yeah. I mean, he honestly, he's he has done theatre. He's sort of – he's going through a really cool – I mean – Again, I could make this whole interview about my dad because I feel like he's got a way more interesting career trajectory than me. He, at the moment, is having this incredible period of, I think, as Australian television and, and worldwide television is realizing how interesting inclusive casting and inclusive storytelling is. There are so many more opportunities for actors of color. And so for a really long time, he was relegated to very particular roles and often quite stereotypical roles. And then in the last few years, he's been getting cast in these really interesting stories. He's actually, I think, about to play a Filipino for the very first time in his whole career, which is really exciting for him and for me, honestly, and for the whole, I think, Australian screen landscape. It's really cool to see he's essentially a veteran at this point and he's 
really getting used creatively in ways that I think befit his talent. Did you talk to him when you were a kid or did he talk to you about what it was like, not just to be Filipino in the entertainment industry in Australia in the 70s and 80s, but uh, to be Filipino in Australia, a country that, you know, now has some significant diversity, but um, as you said, yeah. had been as a matter of law, very focused on building a white nation yeah. for a very long yeah. time. It's a country with a very um, challenging and at times tragic history. And I think his experience, as he tells it, is especially in the 80s. He was in his, you know, he was in his young adulthood and he and the group of friends that he had who were mostly young migrants were having the time of their life. Like I think that they were, and I think it was a a period of time as well. I think it was the way that he describes the 80s. It was very like, I think everyone, it sounds like everyone was very wrapped up in their own adventures and there was no exception here for him. And so I think that he was really aware of the opportunities that he had in Australia, um, in the inner city of Australia, that he may not have had in the Philippines, especially considering that they left during the Marcos, the first Marcos regime. And so I think that there was a freedom that was extremely exciting to be a 20-something-year-old in the 80s at that time. And then there were maybe parts of that experience that he didn't really synthesize until later in his life that he was like, oh, and also maybe I experienced some racism. But I think that that's true of what most people, like most migrants or people of color experience when they are lucky enough to be welcomed into a community, which he was, you know, you, it's complicated. You kind of experience both. We've got more to get into with Charlotte Nickdow. When we come back from a quick break, she will talk about what it was like to visit her father's hometown in the Philippines. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. You probably already have a favorite animal. Maybe it's a powerful apex predator like the tiger or a cute and cuddly panda. And those are great, but have you considered something a little more unconventional? Could I perhaps interest you in the Greenland shark, which can live for nearly 400 years? Or maybe the jewel wasp who performs brain surgery on cockroaches to control their minds? On Just the Zoo of Us, we review animals by giving them ratings out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Listen with friends and family of all ages to find your new favorite animal with Just the Zoo of Us on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Charlotte Nickdow. She is an actor and singer. She stars alongside Rob McElhenney in the TV comedy Mythic Quest. The show's third season is streaming now on Apple TV+. Let's get back into it. Did you spend time in the Philippines when you were a kid? Not as much as I would have liked. I went for the first time when I was 15, just me and my dad, and it was an incredible experience. Had your dad been back or was it? Not for a long time. He and my mom went for their honeymoon. Um, But other than that, he hadn't been for, you know, 20 years or something. And it was, I think it was life-changing for both of us because for me, we didn't speak Tagalog at home. Um, We didn't even really eat much Filipino food. We were very 
typical, my mum's white Australian and I think we were that, he had that real, I think a lot of second gen people experience this. He had that very, um, let's assimilate, like you're Australian, eat Vegemite and fit in. And then I think when I was 15, if anything, my mum was more encouraging of us embracing our Filipinoness. Um, and then, yeah, when I was 15, he took me to Manila and I had what felt like an extremely, and it was, it was like this very weighted experience of being 15 years old, being in this place for the first time and feeling like I had come home. I didn't speak the language. I didn't know my way around. I All I knew about Manila was what he had told me. And yet there was some very um, innate feeling of like, oh, this is where I belong and this is this is a place that is always going to be important to me. And I think for him, it was a reminder that it was his home as well. And so then after that, we all as a family would travel there as frequently as possible. Haven't been able to in the last few years, which is difficult and sad, but hopefully soon because I love it there. When did you decide to like go on an audition to be a professional <laughs> actor? Um, I didn't really decide. Like what I will say is I I used to do school plays and love them and I would play whatever role and I was always very strategic about which roles I would go in for. Like our school did a production of Guys and Dolls and I was like, I'm never getting a female lead. I can't really dance. I'm going to audition for Big Jewel, the gangster, because I will get that because that's funny. Like people will think it's funny to see me play a gangster in a wig. Do you, do you, is that a true thing that happened? Yeah, that's a true thing that happened. Yes, I did. Of course I did. And I was hilarious. I stole the show. Do you remember any of your lines? I don't. I do remember that we had to do that song, the, I said, everybody sit down. Do you know, do you know that I've never seen well? Guys and Dolls, no. It's fine. Um, there's a song where I think I had to do, the biggest section of my performance is that I had to do this like little mini speech about like the woes of being a mob boss and I really milked it. Did you like, do a gangster voice? Did I do? That's a great question. I don't know. If I did, it would have been bad. <laughs> <laughs> I really was hoping that you would. Uh, this whole yeah, thing out. has just yeah, been yeah, yeah. me just trying, trying to, to get you to New York gangster voice. <laughs> it's like when Mel Blanc is on the Tonight Show and Johnny Carson <laughs> says, "Is Bugs Bunny here or whatever?" <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I, I wish I could remember a line and I totally deliver it. But uh, so you were doing school plays. I was doing school plays and I loved them. But I never considered that it could be something that I could do as a job. And and potentially it was because looking at film and television at that time, I didn't see anyone really that looked like me that was doing the kind of work that I would have been interested in doing. So I just didn't think that there was a pathway. And my dad's agent would occasionally send me in for auditions if she didn't have anyone on her books that fit a brief. And so... One of those times, I must have been like 16 or 17, uh, she sent me into audition for this kid's show, scripted show, and I got it. And it was uh, it was the lead in a like 26-episode series that filmed, we were living in Melbourne at the time, it filmed in Sydney, Singapore, and Germany. And it filmed during my final year of high school. 
And my parents have always just been extremely supportive of like letting me choose which direction I want to go in. And they were like, at the time I was studying at a specialist music school, like I was, I was at the time getting ready to be an orchestral clarinetist. I thought I was going to play in the symphony orchestra. And they were like, well, if you just want to go and film this TV show, you can. And I was like, this is so funny. Imagine if instead of going back to school, I go and film a TV show. That'll get a big laugh. I'm going to do that. I can't, like, I was very precocious. I kind of did it as like a funny call, you know, like. Oh, wait, but do you think that you were taking that tone with yourself because you really felt that way? Or do you think you were taking that tone with yourself as a matter of teenage self-protection? You've got me in one. It was definitely the latter. Like, I, I mean, I know I would have thought that I was doing it sincerely, ironically at the time. But I know now that there was a part of me that was like, well, I love doing the school play and this would just be that all year and that would be so fun. And it was and it was an incredible experience and it was a real boot camp of figuring out how to learn a lot of lines and stand on your mark and know what the week's schedule was going to be. And I loved it and I got back and I was still in that sincere irony and I was like, okay, time to go to uni to keep studying music now. And I did. I went and studied for a year as a jazz singer at the Victorian College of the Arts and then I got to the end of that year and I was like, I'm kidding myself. I want to be an actor. (laughs) I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. My guest is Charlotte Nickdow. She's the star of the Apple TV Plus series, Mythic Quest. Were you auditioning for stuff... Uh, as an American or as an Australian? That is to say, were you doing an American voice and presenting yourself as an American? I did for a long time. For a long time, I would go into rooms with an American accent, introduce myself in the American accent, pretend just like not, not try not to give any clue away. I was really just talking about when you were reading, this is next no, no, level. No. I, I love but, this. But, but, and I think, but I think a lot of non-American actors do it because, well, firstly, I think easier than transitioning in and out of an accent. And then secondly, I think that for a while people thought that it gave them a better shot of getting the job. And then after a while, I realized that what it was actually doing was taking away an opportunity to have a conversation with someone. Because if you walk into a room and you speak with your Australian accent, people usually have questions about that. And then if you can successfully switch into the American accent, then it's impressive. (laughs) But then, ironically, I guess, when I went in for Mythic Quest, they immediately were like, oh, we want want your natural accent. Because I auditioned for Poppy originally with an American accent. And they were like, no, 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 do do your Australian accent. And so I finally booked a job here and they wanted me to play Australian. And then I just haven't really had to speak in my American accent since. And now it's gone. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I mean, I can do it if I warm up into it, but like there was a time where I could really like switch it on and off like a party trick. And now I'm like, oh no, I'm Australian all the time. Where is that skill that I used to have? You know, this show is known as the party of NPR. And <laughs> oh we, yeah. We love we love, love to party hear trick? people's party tricks. <laughs> okay, hold on. The problem is there are a few things that are easy to do in American accent. Like if I if I just remember to pronounce my R's, it's easy to do. But there are some intonation things that you would probably notice. I actually find that the more vocal fry I put in, the more convincing it is. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was genuinely impressive. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> That's like when Mike Judge does Beavis and Butthead. You're, you always think, are they going to make him do Beavis and Butthead? And then yeah. he does it, and you're like, oh, it's amazing. Look, it's, it's Mike Judge sitting there, but Beavis and Butthead is coming out of his mouth. <laughs> that rules. Um, so when you got cast on Mythic Quest, how much did you know about the sort of very intense cultural milieu in which the show is set, which is making games? Yeah, not a lot. I, and I'm ashamed to say I think what I did know was v- a very tiny slice of what is a vast and varied um, community and lands- creative landscape. Like, I had watched a lot of Anita Sarkeesian videos, and that was my understanding of what the gaming world was. She she is a culture critic, especially online culture critic, who made a, a long series of insightful videos about gaming media, Gamergate. yeah, media tropes and uh, their relationship to you know cultural theory, right? And and as informative and honestly smart and funny those videos were it being my only understanding of what the gaming world was was meant that my understanding was limited right. and so <laughs> she she also was targeted by horrible people yes. in nightmarish ways yes. and so you could it could be understood that you would uh, get a weird sense of the community Absolutely. based on that um, but i do think that almost as soon as i was cast uh I I firstly did a deep dive. I read a bit. I bought a Nintendo Switch and I started just playing games. Um, I we were so lucky to have Ashley Birch uh, as a writer and an actor on the show because she uh, is a star of that in of the gaming world and knows so much and is so beloved by that community and also loves the community so much and was able to give all of us a way more, um, not just nuanced, but honestly exciting insight as to what that world is. And one of the things that I discovered really early on was that the thing that I love about acting is pretty much what gaming is all about. It's about playing a character that is not yourself, that has different skills and attributes to the to the ones that you have in a world that maybe doesn't exist, that you get to explore, that you get to make decisions in and sort of discover what happens next. And I didn't realize that so much, this is so naive and now I understand that that is its function, but at the time I really didn't realize how much gaming was pure storytelling. There's also, I think that Many, many Americans have firsthand experience with that part of gaming, right? There's a lot of gamers in the world and in the United States, a significant majority maybe, uh, but relatively few have direct experience or even indirect knowledge of the culture of making games. I got a couple of buddies, one from one of my best buddies from high school and one of my best buddies from college who work in the game industry. And they're both really brilliant and really deeply passionate about video games. Mm. Um, It also seems like a genuinely brutal context in which to work. Yeah. I mean, we've had 
a lot of people reach out to us and say, wow, it's so accurate. This is just like my workplace. And we're like, no, that's not good. It shouldn't be. It's very toxic. (laughs) I I mean, yeah, I I think that it is, uh, it is, what I've heard from people is that the way that the show depicts that very particular relationship between a creative industry and a tech industry. It's got all the elements that you might expect would become intense or overwhelming out of both of those industries all rolled into one office. Yeah. One of the things that I find really interesting about your character, who is a coding genius, Mm -hmm. um, is the sort of relationship between her world within her doing her thing, right? Like within the keyboard. Yes. Within staring into them, or in this case, sometimes the, you know, metaverse goggles yep. or whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> gives you something, gives the audience something to look at, among yep. other things. <laughs> but between that and like what that means in the context of other human beings. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I really, we really delve into that this season because we've had in season one and two, this sort of running joke that Poppy doesn't want people to think of her as a mechanic, that she, what she does is creative and insightful and requires artistic thinking and that no one really understands what it is that she does or why it would be exciting. And so this season we're really there's we there's some really fun stuff that the show does with trying to let the audience in on what Poppy's experience is like when she's coding, and I cannot code. Uh, I when I got the job, I signed up for like a free online course of like coding 101, and I got through maybe half an hour of content before I was like. This is not this is not for me. My brain doesn't work like this and I can't do it. But I did speak with a programmer who described it. She said that when she was growing up, she her, I think her dad was literally a mechanic and um she used to take cars apart and put them back together and loved that. But it's expensive. And when she got a computer and realized that she could, it was a very similar thing. You have all these tools and elements that you put together in different ways to make something new. And all you need is the computer and time, that that was extremely exciting for her. And that was such a great window into what coding was for me and why someone might be obsessed with playing around with those building blocks. And also in Poppy's world, this idea that this is a space that she has complete control over, that always behaves exactly as it's meant to, that once you know the formula, you put that formula in and all its permutations and you know what's going to come out, as opposed to the real world where humans are erratic and unpredictable and often don't take what she has to say or do in the way that she intends it and everything is out of control. I mean, everything is out of control with basically all the people on the show at all times. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, which is both Poppy's nightmare and her doing. It must have been exciting for you um, as, you know, the kind of pleasant, adorable person who could get cast as a 13-year-old on a children's show as a (laughs) 17-year-old to realize that as the show has gone on from the first season where your character is kind of a peppy underdog Mm -hmm. is your character has gained status and power, become more central in the show um, that 
we have gotten to see that actually she's she's kind flawed of and jerk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean that was the intention from the beginning, and we spoke about it like right at the beginning of season one. And in my mind, I see Poppy's like um, series arc as being like a Walter White arc. Like you get introduced to her as an underdog, and so you root for her automatically. And the more that you discover about who she is and how she operates and what she wants and what she's willing to sacrifice to get it, the more that you realize that maybe she should have stayed an underdog. <laughs> this show was created by some folks who have who created and worked forever on It's Always Sunny on in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. um, including your co-star on the show, Rob McElhaney, who co-created that show. Um, and David Hornsby, another one of the stars of the show, mm-hmm. was a worked on that show forever. Yeah. Um, I was going to say this is a more sincere show than that one, although I think that once I rolled that around in my head for a second, I thought, gosh, actually, Always Sunny is a really sincere show. It's yeah. just a very unusual kind of sincere. Yeah, I agree. Involves <laughs> <laughs> a sort of deep <laughs> commitment to a a sort of evil, I guess, would <laughs> yes. be it's not quite evil. It's something like that. But anyway, uh, were you surprised at the tone of this show, which is, you know, Always Sunny resets itself every episode. It's mm-hmm. about a group of friends who have no morals at all other than a sort of short-term emotional satisfaction and maybe friendship? Yeah, <laughs> sort <Maybe>. of. <laughs> Maybe in a way, yeah. Um, and it's like really intense and gross, and yeah, it's a wonderful show. Um, your show is a very sincerely emotional show, mm-hmm. minutes will pass with no jokes. Were you surprised by the tone? I mean, I remember in season one, there was a day that uh, we were shooting a scene where I just yell and cry all day, and I remember getting to lunchtime and thinking, I really thought that I was signing on for a comedy. (laughs) And it is. It is funny. And I think that what the shows have in common that Rob and Megan Gans, the co-creator who also has worked on Sunny for a few seasons now, I think that what they have brought over is this um, respect for their audience, really putting things in front of the audience and not telling them how they're meant to feel about it, but saying, will you decide? Are they good people? Are they bad people? What makes them good or bad? Should these relationships continue or shouldn't they? We're not going to tell you. Like, you figure it out. And I think a lot of the comedy comes from that. And then I think in in the case of Mythic Quest, they're really taking the opportunity to mine that for drama as well. And I, I also I think that the intention has always been to see the characters grow and change. And it is really cool getting the scripts at the beginning of each season and looking at, oh, that makes sense that this person this season is moving into this phase of who they are because it was set up last season. And I think you really see that in season three as well as if you haven't seen season two, it happens there too. But I also, and I don't know about this, I I haven't actually asked them, but I have to believe that the fact that Season one came out and then one week into shooting season two, the pandemic hit. And that, I mean, that was when we shot our quarantine episode. We shot season two in 2020. I really think that there was a vulnerability that came along with making the show in that time that gave permission to delve into some of those 
darker aspects of the characters, but also it felt natural to do that. It felt almost disingenuous not to. We'll wrap up with Charlotte Nickdow in just a minute. When we get back from the break, she used to audition a lot with an American accent. These days, she mostly uses her natural Australian one. We'll ask why she feels empowered to use her real voice. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hello, I'm a stuffy dowager countess. Travis? I'm judging everybody's manners. Oh, no. Schmanners isn't judgy. It's about teaching you to be your best self and be a little more confident when you enter social situations that you don't understand, and maybe also teach you a little bit about history you didn't know or give you interesting things to talk about at parties. Yeah, like The Secret Life of Emily Post. Or like why wristwatches are the way that they are. We can talk about table manners from the Victorian era. Sure, or what it's like to attend a Regency Ball. Yeah. Uh, you can find all that and more if you listen to Schmanners on Maximum Fun or wherever your podcasts come from, I guess. Manners, Schmanners. Get it? I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. My guest is Charlotte Nickdow. She's the star of the Apple TV Plus series, Mythic Quest. Let's get back into it. It must have been weird to feel like you've made it in show business in the sense that you have been cast in a television program in the United States. It's a real money show. Uh, you made a season of it. It was pretty well received. It got picked up for a second season. And then the world is laid waste for the following two years. I remember at the season one premiere, we we premiered at the, at the Cinerama Dome, the Arclight, and then we had this huge after party. Like I had never, it was very overwhelming and very glamorous and um, I couldn't quite believe it. And at the end of the night we left and there were cars waiting to pick us up in our, you know, all our finery. And Rob put his hand on my shoulder and was like, get used to this. <laughs> and then <laughs> a week later I was trapped in my home and couldn't leave. And I was like, wait, but what about the glamour from earlier? <laughs> it's been weird, but it's, I mean, I'm not, I'm certainly not going to complain about what my last couple of years have looked like because I've been extraordinarily lucky to have landed in the circumstance that I landed in. And I know that not everyone did. Um, and so. You also had the experience of spending time in Australia when mm. Australia was at essentially zero COVID. So that's true. But also, I mean, we spent all of 2020 here in LA and then 2021 went back to Australia uh, at, and at first it was zero COVID and it was very strange. And we were very scared because we had gone from very high levels of COVID to going back to Australia where people weren't even really wearing masks. And we were like, what is going on? And then, um, I, w I live in Melbourne when I'm there and we, a few months into us getting back, went into extreme lockdowns there that were very, you know, we didn't, we really couldn't leave the house and um, they, they had rules about you couldn't leave a five kilometre radius of your house. So we kind of experienced the most intense versions of what that looked like for us in each city, which was unfortunate, but also an experience. Do you feel strengthened by it? <laughs> uh, yes, I do. And again, I 
know how privileged I am to be able to come out of the pandemic and say I feel strengthened by it. But I'm a really, I'm an extrovert in the truest sense. Like I draw energy from being around people and to not have that for months on end for me, I think was weirdly healthy. I don't know. Did you draw strength from it? No, it's horrible. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is the thing. Like, we were so we were so lucky that we kind of were able to just hole up, which is again that sounds insufferable, but I guess that was our experience. And you know, I'm yeah, I'm lucky. I'm really lucky. I happen to have read that you and your husband at one point owned a plant store, and I feel like a couple that owned a plant store together is pretty much the ideal set. A childless couple yeah. that owned a plant store together. Yeah, that's exactly. That's well, a quarantine we, setup if ever there was one. We spent most of 2021 like gardening and and planting vegetables, uh, which was, I mean, God. <laughs> Literally the most emotionally productive thing you could have done in that yeah. period of time. Yeah. Like, and of course, also tantrums and like crying into the soil and, you know, replenishing the nutrients with our tears. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like in some kind of Hawaiian folktale or something. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. <laughs> um, when you uh when you go out for auditions now, how often are you uh Australian? How often are you American? Now I I pretty almost for everything I'll be like can I be Australian and yeah I think I used to feel like it was such a flex to be able to be like well I could be American and I think that this is a reflection of what the film and tv landscape looks like at the moment where um it's like a global locality it's like you the shows that hit aren't necessarily hitting because they are set on your street often they're hitting because they're very specific culturally and there are universe universal themes to it so like I loved Dairy Girls even though I needed to watch it with subtitles um and so I think that there's I think that yeah productions are way more open to being like okay she's an Australian Filipina what would that do for the character uh and I'm kind of proud of that now rather than feeling like it's something that I have to hide. I love Dairy Girls because it felt like my uh, stepmother's sisters were calling from Belfast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you didn't have to watch it with subtitles then. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, what about Filipina? Do you go in there and... I I think that it depends. I, I, yeah, I've, I've, I've actually had a conversation about this recently with a director where a character was written as Chinese and I, and he asked, well, should we change the character to Filipina? And I really think it's such a case by case. I mean, if some, if the character can be Filipina, yes, of course, I want her to be Filipina Australian because that's what I am. But I also think that there are times where you don't have to specify an ethnicity for the story to still be told in its in the richest form. What was it? I was listening to or reading something about this idea of like what the um what a blank slate is, like how a white man is is 
you pre- you're presented with a white male character and, and the first thing that you ask is like, okay, so what do I need to know about him? Rather than if even if you change it to a white woman, now the story has to be partly about the fact that she's a woman. And if she's a Filipina woman, now it has to be kind of about that she's Filipina and a woman. And so I am excited by the ways that that is becoming less and less necessary in the film and television landscape now, but that you can potentially be. I mean, I feel like this is Poppy, to be honest. We don't bring up the fact that she's Filipina until season two. We don't really talk about like what it means for her to be Australian until the quarantine episode. Like there are a few jokes made, but other than that, it's just a passing thing about her. And the 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 character is a genius programmer who works with someone that she needs but hates, you know? Yeah, it just so happens that every other week her mom shows up with a giant fat of lumpia. Yes. And her dad shows up with a jar of Vegemite. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, sh- I sure appreciate you taking all this time to talk to me. It was uh, really nice, and uh, the show's really great. Thank you so much. This is so fun. Charlotte Nickdow, folks. The third season of Mythic Quest is streaming now on Apple TV+. Plus. A wonderful show. Also features F. Murray Abraham. Always great to see F. Murray Abraham. Go watch it. It's a delight. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I was in the city of commerce today where I visited Business Costco. I love Business Costco. I bought those rubber mats that are in like commercial restaurant kitchens, the ones with the holes in them. I love it. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and thanks to Memphis Industries, their label. You can find Bullseye on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Give us a follow in all of those places. We will share our interviews with you, and thence you may share them anon with others. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.